Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from The Message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. Okay, everybody, welcome, welcome. Let me just remind you where we're at. We're in Luke chapter 23. Open your Bibles there if you have it. By now it's 3 p.m. in the afternoon, three hours of darkness, and now Jesus hangs dead, nailed to a wooden cross. He's spoken his final words and he's breathed his last, and the centurion has just recognized the righteousness of the man dying a criminal's death, the sinless one who carries the sins of the world upon his shoulders. Others who stand close by beat their chests and they leave. They're the onlookers, the bystanders. They've come, they're shocked and they're distressed at the horror that they've just witnessed, but then they move on. But those who love him, those who know him, stay and watch. Verse 49 says, But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. They have journeyed through the darkest hours in history, and they've watched their friend in agony upon the cross. And they they stand just far enough away that they don't somehow become implicated in the moment. They huddle together in distress and in despair. And then Luke draws our attention in verse 50 to one man in the crowd. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. And he's epic. I've really fallen for the guy as I've gone through the passage. In every sense, he should be a baddie. He's a a Jewish leader. He's understood to probably be a Pharisee. And he's proper rich. He's likely to be a rabbi. And we're told that he's a member of the council. I don't know how you feel about members of the council, but he's a member of the council. The council, let me just remind you, that is responsible for killing Jesus. They've plotted and they've schemed the arrest of Christ. They've handed him over to the Romans to be sentenced and crucified. But Joseph, Joseph stood against them all. He's been the probably one of the only dissenting voices behind the scenes. He's been fighting the case for Christ. Why? Because we're told this. He himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He himself has been waiting for this un, un, upside-down kingdom. Man, after all this time, and I got it wrong. The upside-down kingdom of God to be revealed. He's a kingdom conspirator. He believes that Christ is the king. He is a secret believer. But he's been shouted down. He's been outvoted and he's been overruled. Now Jesus hangs dead. Let me read you John 19 from verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders didn't want their, uh, the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, 
bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. It's important to know that both the Jews and the Romans know that Jesus is dead. He's so dead that they don't have to finish him off by breaking his legs. The the Jews just need Jesus buried fast. See, time is running out. It's three in the afternoon and Sabbath begins at six, which means there's just three hours to take Jesus from the cross and get him buried because when six o'clock comes, everything stops. Like everybody has to rest. Nothing can happen and they don't want Christ hanging permanently upon a cross. And so Joseph of Arimathea steps up and he goes to ask Pilate, for the body of Christ. And I wonder how that conversation goes. Like, how do you ask for a dead man on a cross? Could, could I have Jesus? Like, imagine that conversation. But I reckon Pilate just wants the whole thing done and dusted as quickly as possible. You just take him. And so Pilate consents. But the body of Jesus isn't lying in a morgue. It's not ni- nicely ready, lying in a funeral home, just waiting for a funeral. Jesus hangs on a cross. And Joseph has to take him down. Joseph has to take him from the cross. Imagine the mess. The blooded body of Jesus. He's been pierced with a spear which has sent Blood and water, that's intestinal juices from his body. His body is draining out. It's an awful moment. And Simon is the one that says, I'll do it. But Simon is risking so much. He's risking the threat of the Romans by being associated with the Christ. He's being, uh, he risks hatred from the Jews. His very existence is at risk But Joseph is all in for Jesus. See, there's this Jewish law called corpse uncleanness. Touching the dead is considered to be the highest grade of uncleanness and defilement that you can find in the Jewish faith. It's so appalling, so, so um, unclean that it's called the father of all uncleanness. To touch the dead means isolation and purification for days. To purify yourself, you have to be covered in the ashes of a red heifer and then follow through to ritual bathing. And that's if you're an ordinary Jew. But for religious leaders like Joseph, it's a total no-no. And if he's of a priestly line, it's completely forbidden. But Joseph is all in. He's counting the cost. See, Simon of Cyrene got to carry the cross, but Joseph of Arimathea gets to carry the Christ. And it's incredible, and it's wonderful. And in that moment, he defiles himself by carrying the Holy One. He makes himself dirty by carrying the one who makes us clean. Can you see how wonderful the moment is? Matthew's Gospel describes Joseph as a rich man. He's bought himself a nice new tomb, probably for his family. It's somewhere close by on a hillside. It's been hollowed out like a cave in a rock. And Jesus is hurriedly taken there and wrapped in linen cloths and buried as a giant stone is rolled over the entrance. It's grand and it's ostentatious. It's way too posh for the penniless Jesus. 
It's way too lavish for the lowly Christ. It's way too splendid for the servant king. From a virgin's womb to a virgin's tomb. Jesus carries. Jesus dies a criminal, but is given a king's burial. And all this fulfills an ancient prophet from, a prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, spoken 700 years before. Isaiah 59, uh, 53 verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. See, he dies amongst the wicked with criminals either side, but he's buried amongst the wealthy and amongst the rich. And it's absolutely fascinating. Then verse 55 says this, The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how the body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. Oh my goodness, these women are incredible. I absolutely love them. They are in every way faithful, courageous, radical disciples of Christ. They followed him his entire ministry from Galilee through life and and all that's been achieved. And now they've stood and watched him in his death. And now they follow him to his burial. They follow Joseph to the tomb. And it's important that they witness where the tomb is. And it's important that they too are witnesses that see Christ laid inside. They see the place of his rest. And then they return home to prepare spices and perfumes to anoint his body. But time runs out and they have to stop for the Sabbath day. They must rest. And I imagine they're so desperate to get back and you you can feel the pain as they have to now wait days to get back to finish the job that leaves Christ in his burial state. Imagine the pain and the heartbreak. Desperate to return. But Jesus doesn't need anointing. Yes, he's risen from the dead. I'm going to get there. But he's already been anointed. Let me take you back in the scriptures. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume because he's going to be buried as a king. And she poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table, which must have been deeply inconvenient when you're trying to eat your soup. But when when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. He's been anointed anointed by an ungodly, unworthy sinner who has broken her offering upon the Christ while he's very much alive and it's wonderful. He doesn't need a second anointing. Luke 24, 
It's Easter Sunday morning, and it's super early. It's still dark, and the women almost at their first opportunity, like they've been waiting for their moment. As soon as they wake blurry-eyed, they make their way towards the cave, towards the tomb of Christ. And you imagine they're hunched over. They barely whisper a word to each other. They just know what they've got to achieve that day. They are depressed. They are sad, and they are without hope. You imagine the eyes are blurry and red from crying. Have they even slept a wink? Somehow they remember their way back through the dark to where the tomb is. But when they arrive at the tomb, they find that the massive two-ton stone has been rolled away. That would not just worry me. I'd be slightly freaked out. And there are no guards. You know, they said, I've read this thing that said there would have been guards, not just two, but many sat around in positions around the tomb, but they've all gone, which adds to the confusion. And with nothing and no one stopping them, they walk straight in. And the tomb is empty. Verse 3, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Wait, did you hear that? Listen again. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Did you spot it? It's subtle, but Luke writes about the body, not of Jesus, but of the Lord Jesus. He could have said the body of Jesus. He said it just a few verses earlier, but now he calls him the Lord Jesus. Nowhere else in the gospel of Luke will you find those two words beautifully placed together. Nowhere else in the gospels is Jesus called the Lord Jesus. You'll find it 40 times in Acts and the Epistles but not in the Gospels and I love it and it's epic Luke calls it early Luke calls it first he calls him the Lord Jesus and you won't find his body because he's not Jesus of Nazareth he isn't Jesus the good teacher he isn't Jesus the carpenter he's Jesus the Lord the Lord of life and the Lord of death the Alpha and the Omega the first and the last death couldn't hold him the grave is defeated He silenced death. He is risen. It's better than that. Oh my goodness. Do you see what he's doing here? He's telling us what's going to happen and the women don't even realize. They don't get a voiceover. They don't get hindsight. They walk into a dark tomb, baffled and confused, and they question everything. Are we in the right place? Is this the right tomb? I'm pretty sure I saw him him lying there. I swear down he was here last time. Amidst their confusion, two men show up and their clothes are gleaming like lightning. In brackets, they're angels. I don't think they walked in, they just appear. And the women do what women, what people do when angels appear. They freak out and get to the ground, their faces buried in the dust. But the men say to them, Why are you looking? Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? It's proper harsh, but it's fair. But they've not come looking for the living amongst the dead, they've come looking for the dead amongst the dead. And the men then continue with the greatest words that have ever been uttered by an angel. He is not here, he is risen. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? He is not here, he is risen. 
And you know what angels usually do? They begin to give prophetic words concerning Jesus. But instead, they do something a bit different here. They ask the women to remember the prophetic words of Jesus himself. They say, remember. Man, it's an important thing, by the way, for believers to do. Consistently remember. Remember the things of Christ. Remember what he's done for you. Remember how far he came. Remember the things he's done in your life. Never cease to remember. Remember, remember. They say, remember. Remember Jesus. Remember how he told you. While he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. Be crucified and on the third day be raised again. I love how the angel pinpoints the moment. I reckon when we meet the women, we'll say, did he tell you the street that it happened on? And they'll say, he did. It was down to the detail. Do you remember Galilee? Do you remember what Jesus said to you on the street in Galilee? He said this would happen. He said he'd be handed over to the hands of sinners. He'd be crucified. That's the cross. Do you remember the cross? And they're like, mm. And on the third day, he would rise again. You know, it's so easy at the point of suffering to forget the plans of God. You know, amidst the dark days and amidst dark hours when things are really hard, it's so difficult to, to, to continue to, to remember what God said. It's so important that we never fail to remember. Write a journal. Write what he's done. Write any testimony that you can remember. Stick it in your book. There'll be a dark day when you just need to remember. A day when you'll say he said it. It wasn't Galilee. It might have been Manchester, but he said something. And I need to hold on. Those women, I imagine, when they said, and on the third day he'd raise, I bet they were like, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. At the moment of realization as they count it off on their fingers. And I love verse 8, and they remembered his words. It kindles, rekindles something in their mind and it's just beautiful. And I really want it to be that they remembered and Jesus appeared and he doesn't. We don't know if they remembered and believed, but what we get next is beautiful. Verse 9, when they came back from the tomb, they told these things to the eleven and all the others. They become the first evangelists in history. They share the news of the resurrection and it goes really bad. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna. Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. They're considered to be utterly nuts. The Greek word there is is leros. It means silly talk, folly, nonsense, idle chatter, gibberish, gobbledygook. They're written off as tired and sorrowful and completely bonkers. That is all of them except one. Verse 12. Peter. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Peter in response to the gospel. Peter in response to news of a resurrection runs. I love it. But if you know your gospel, if you've read 
the uh, accounts of the Resurrection Sunday, you'll know that John's account reads a little different. John tells us he too ran. In fact, he wants to make it very clear that he won the race to the tomb. Why doesn't Luke mention John? He only mentions Peter. Is it somehow a biblical error? Have I found a discrepancy that discredits the whole lot? No, Luke wants to emphasize Peter. It's like a film director who zooms in on the character that he wants us to see. Peter is the important one in this moment. Luke has told us so much about him. He's told us that Peter is the one who said to Jesus, I will never leave you. He said, I will go with you to death if need be. But it's Peter, we're told, that has denied Christ not once but thrice. And on the third time, it's Peter, as he's denying Christ, looks into his eyes as he's then taken from there to punishment and death upon a cross. It's Peter that's fled from the courtyard. It's Peter that's probably missed out on witnessing the death of Christ. It's Peter that for the last few days has been sat in agony and depression and sadness, thinking it is all over and I'm done. But yet, at the point of news, it's almost like as he hears these precious women, hope is rekindled. It's like maybe there's a chance and there's something worth running for. And it's like faith the side as, as, a, as a mustard seed is germinated within him. And while others scoff and doubt, Peter runs with hope. All the hope that he has, that isn't a gentle jog, that's running at full pace for as fast as he can and bending over we're told he saw the stripes the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away wondering to himself what had happened he too sees the stone rolled away he too steps inside and sees an empty tomb an empty tomb but for strips of fine linen all by themselves and this is where the translator of the, of, the, of the New Testament could really do with, well, doing as a favor in a way. See, it says that Peter went away wondering to himself. And if you track back to verse 4, it tells us that the women too had wondered. But those two wonderings are very, very different. See, the wonderings of the woman are confused and perplexed. It means they lacked understanding. It means they're at a loss. But Peter's wonderings are beautiful. It's a totally different Greek word that is translated marveled. Peter doesn't wonder in perplexity and confusion. Peter is amazed. Peter is astonished. Peter is awestruck. Peter goes away pondering and hopeful and excited and, and full of anticipation. There's enough to go at. There's enough that seems to be blowing on the embers of his hope and his faith is increasing by the moment. You know, 
there's something in this. This power of faith to reshape our wonderings from confusion to amazement and imagination. Faith transforms wonder. Are you a people full of wonder? Are you perplexed or do you marvel? You know, my, my mind is prone to doubt and confusion, doubt and despair, but faith shifts something. Last night, I lay in bed thinking about this talk, and I began to say to God, I want to wonder again. I want to, to dream with faith. I want to be amazed and astonished. I want to be so bowled over by your salvation, by your power to rescue and save, so overwhelmed by your resurrection power that I begin to dream the impossible dream, that I begin to wonder in amazement at what you could do. I said, Lord, help me. I want to believe for more. I want to expect more. I want salvation for my friends and my family. I began to think I want salvation for Putin. I'm like, I want to dream big. I want transformation for my neighbors and my community. I want to see the eradication of poverty. I want to, I want to pray and believe for revival in the nation. And then I fell asleep. And it's brilliant. It's what I asked for. Lord, let me begin to marvel again. I don't want to wonder in, in perplexity and confusion. Lord, I want to wonder and be amazed and full of expectation of what you could do. Lord, if you defeated the grave, what could you do in me? What could you do through me? What could we see in the nation and the nations? What could he do? Because if he can defeat death, he can do anything. And that's what I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us. As I close this out, I want to pray for us that, that something would shift within us. That faith would transform our wonderings. And maybe you find yourself in the place of doubt and confusion. I want to pray that faith, the gift of faith, is poured out upon us today. That it would transform our wanderings from confusion to amazement. And we begin to have appetite and expectation and anticipate all that Christ can do for faith to rekindle upon us. And we would start to hope and to run. This kind of hope doesn't leave you static. It doesn't leave you sitting in a place of doubt and confusion. This kind of hope causes you to run with all that you have in expectation of all that Christ can do. So why don't you stand with me? Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. Thanks for listening.